Most Sundays we spend our time at this, at this portion of the service exploring one particular passage of scripture, but we're in a sermon series that addresses the creeds. So we're going to think about the portion of the Nicene Creed that you found printed in your service leaflet under the sermon notes, so the part of the creed that begins, we believe in one Lord and ends with, and was made man. That will be the subject for this morning. So we begin, the letter iota is uh, the equivalent to the, the Greek equivalent to the letter I. It's the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. Are you familiar with the phrase, there is not one iota worth of difference? Right. Not one iota worth of difference means that there's just no substantive difference between one option and the other. Now that phrase, not one iota worth of difference, has a very interesting history. It's all the way back to the earliest days of the church, uh, around the year 300 AD. Now as the fourth century began, the early 300s began, the church was in a much different place. Uh, the, con the constant persecution which had marked the beginning of the church's uh, existence had faded away. As a matter of fact, the emperor Constantine had converted to Christianity. Now historians, of course, question the uh, authenticity of his conversion, but the impact was certainly no noticeable that the, the outright persecution that had afflicted the church uh, had ceased for the most part. And the church grew, and it grew at a remarkable pace, a new season for the life of the church. However, the church was not out of danger. There was a pastor named Arius, and Arius lived in Alexandria, northern Egypt, and Arius pastored a large church, a successful and a thriving church, and a large and successful thriving city. Alexandria was a huge port city of the Roman Empire. Arius was described by his contemporaries as being, uh, uh, having a commanding presence, tall, uh, ascetic, meaning he was disciplined. He was the type of guy you just wanted to be, he seemed to be set up for success and his church was growing and thriving. And then Arius began to say some things that just didn't seem right. Arius quoted, drawing on passages like Luke chapter 18, verse 19, in which Jesus says, why do you call me good? Only God is good. Arius drawing on passages like that began to teach that Jesus was really great. <laughs> Jesus was the greatest of all of God's creatures. But he just wasn't God. After all, Jesus says only God is good. Now, the reasons he says that, we're not going to get into, but Jesus is not denying his divinity. But that's what Arius picked up on and said, look, Jesus is great. He's just not God. And the bishop of Alexandria, whose name we don't know, said, you know, that just does not seem right. So he called what would become the first of the major councils of the early church. I found this helpful. This is what my ordaining bishop said. The early church you can think of as five centuries in which occurred four councils, which confirmed three creeds, which affirmed the two natures of the one Christ. Right? Five centuries, four councils, three creeds, two natures of the one Christ. And the first creed, uh, the first council occurred in the year 325, it occurred in a town called Nicaea. A couple of people were at that council, and bishops and pastors from all over came to this council. A couple of noteworthy figures. One was a fellow saint, uh, or Nicholas, kind of gave it away. Nicholas from Mira. Do you know who Nicholas Mira is better known as? 
Santa Claus, Saint Nick. So Santa Claus was at the council. Uh, and another fellow named Athanasius. As, uh, an ap- Athanasius apparently did not, was not tall and commanding and handsome like Arius was. His nickname was the Black Dwarf. So poor Athanasius, he was the bi- assistant to the bishop of Alexandria. And he was there. And again, the question is, is Jesus God or is he just really like God? And the council of Nicaea quickly affirmed, Arius, you're wrong. Jesus is, in fact, God. He's not like God. He's not one of God's best creatures. No, he's God in the flesh. Case closed, issue settled. Not so fast. Because for the next 80 years, over the next four councils that I just, three councils that I just referenced, Nicaea being the first one, over the next three councils, this was the subject that embroiled the early church. And it involved over five Over 15 emperors, five popes, hundreds of bishops, and mobs in the street. This was the front page news of the day. Hard to believe, but it was. And on one side, you had Arius. And on the other side, you had Athanasius, this bishop, assistant to the bishop. And at the middle of this dispute was one little Greek letter of one big Greek word. Arius, who asserted that Jesus was like God, not God, but like him, described the relationship between Jesus and God with the word homoousis. Homoousis. Arius said, Athanasius said, no, 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 no. Jesus is not like God. He is of one substance with God. And the word he used was the word homoousis. And the only distinction between those two words is one little Iota. Well, eventually the affirmations made at Nicaea were confirmed and reaffirmed. And you can hear uh, in the Nicene Creed how firmly we assert that Jesus is in fact God. He is God from God, light from light, true God from true God. So the affirmations made at Nicaea were reaffirmed. And it is easy to be a little bit critical of that theological controversy, isn't it? To look back with historic hindsight and think, come on. What's the big deal? You say potato, I say potato. You say Jesus was God, I say Jesus was like God. There's not one iota worth of difference. That's where the phrase comes from. The phrase was originally a critique of what seemed to be a pointless argument about arcane words. My goal this morning is to convince you otherwise. (laughs) My goal is to convince you that the whole of the Christian faith depends on just a little iota. That it really matters whether Jesus is truly God or he is just like God. And we'll find that this little iota, this affirmation that Jesus is truly God, does three things. Number one, it validates the experience of the normal Christian. Number two, this little iota is vital in defining the content of the Christian faith. And number three, this little iota, the fact that Jesus is God, the very nature of God, is a source of great comfort. So let's jump in. First point. This little iota, which affirms that Jesus is the same substance, not like God, but God, validates the normal Christian experience. 
Some years ago, there was the popular book, uh, The Da Vinci Code. I read it, eh, mezzo, mezzo. Uh, movie, even a, a worse movie on an okay book. Uh, but The Da Vinci Code asserted that it rewrote history of the, of the early church and suggested that Jesus was just a good man and everyone thought that Jesus was a good man and then this group in Nicaea got together and came down with a declaration. Just a old, bunch of old white guys got together and said, hey, I've got an idea. We're going to really elevate Jesus and make him God. In other words, these councils were declarative and these councils were creative and inserting something that didn't already exist. And there simply could not be anything further from the truth. There's a song we sung as we began, of the Father's love begotten. It's not a theological argument. That is an expression of worship written from about the same time as these uh, controversies were roiling. And in that song, Christians sing of, of the Father's love begotten, ere the worlds began to be. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the source. This is not a theological argument. This is simply an expression of worship. Further, we have a copy of a prayer from about the same time. A martyr, before he died, wrote this prayer. He said, praise to you, Lord Jesus. This is from the year 303. Praise to you, Lord Jesus. I was a lost sheep. You found me. Let me not fall away from the true faith, faith in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the true and existing glorious King. Again, not a theological argument. It's just an expression of worship in which Jesus is both prayed to as God and, and, and recognized as God. The councils did not say, hey, I've got a great idea. Let's declare Jesus God. No, the councils corrected the error of a few and affirmed the practice of the many. The normal average Christian simply worshiped God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And this assertion from Arius that Jesus was not really God didn't mesh. Now, why is this important? It's important because people in church leadership say dumb things all the time. Just recently, there was a significant pastor who suggested that the Old Testament is really irrelevant and that all we need is the New Testament. And you don't need to be a theologian to think, now wait, wait a second, that really doesn't seem right. You see, there is such a thing as uh, what we could call the Catholic faith, the universal faith that is the Christian faith that is as it is practiced and as it is uh, um, believed by the majority of people in the majority of time. And we should take great comfort in the fact that there is something of a uniform faith out there. Yes, there's going to be disagreement in the fringes. Yes, there will always be a few outliers who say things that are just wacky. But there is a, a uniform faith. And our goal should be in sol to be in solidarity with that uniform faith. So this little iota, which asserts that Jesus is God, did not declare, did not create the belief that Jesus was God. Rather, it confirmed or it validated the experience of the normal Christian believer. Point number two. This little iota, which asserts that Jesus is God, is vital to the content of our faith in that it both clarifies the extent of our need and the degree of God's love. Let me comment on both of those. 
this little iota, which asserts that Jesus is at the very nature of God, ex clarifies humanity's need. What do I mean? Eskimos can identify 19 types of snow. Parents can identify 19 types of children crying. Just this past week, I installed my water heater, so kudos to me. <laughs> However, I didn't do so improperly, and I got all sorts of air in my pipes. And you know what happens when you have air in your pipes. It spits and sputters. Only this was like that uh, times 10. It's like my pipes, the, the pipes were uh, possessed. So, one daughter was upstairs and she flipped on the water and the pipes sputtered and spouted with great vigor. And from the upstairs bathroom, I heard a cry. And I recognized that cry. It was the cry of startled perplexity. I know that cry. That is a non-urgent cry. And because it is a non-urgent cry, I sat on the couch. <laughs> and I sent someone else to go deal with, actually I sent my wife. Uh, <laughs> it's a non-urgent cry. Now every parent knows the urgent cry. We, we, we know that cry that uh, demands immediate engagement. That, that, that cry that gets us out of this chair, couch, whatever we're doing and prompts our involvement and our immediate involvement. My degree of involvement depends upon the level of urgency. And if Jesus is God, our need must be very urgent. Why? Because God is directly, not indirectly. He got involved, intimately involved. Why? Because it was a cry of desperation, an urgent need that prompted his engagement. Knowing that there are many people who work for the government, I say this tentatively, but one of the most frightening statements of the English language is, hi, I'm from the government, I'm here to help. We should not think of Jesus as saying, I am from God and I'm here to help. No. Rather, we should think of Jesus as saying, I am God, I'm here to save. This little iota is central to the content of the Christian faith because it declares and defines humanity's need. But it is not just urgency of need that prompts our engagement, prompts our involvement, also affection. Affection. This little iota defines the degree of God's love. My wife and I are watching Designated Survivor. We're about to give up halfway through season two. But it's a story about President Kirkland, played by Kiefer Sutherland. And in this series, uh, there's international crises and there's personal crises involving the family. And when there's an international crisis, Kiefer Sutherland, the president, will go to the Situation Room. And from the Situation Room, he'll deploy whomever to wherever needs to go to account for that crisis. But in some episodes, it's not a family, it's not a national or international crisis, it's a personal crisis. And when there's a personal crisis, he doesn't go to the situation room, he gets involved. He gets personally involved. I mean, after all, he is Kiefer Sutherland. And his degree of involvement is not only reflective of the urgency of the need, it's also reflective of his affection. 
So we should not think of God as in some heavenly situation room deploying whomever or wherever to fix some urgent need. No, God is directly and intimately involved, not only because the need is urgent, but because his affection is great. Pastor Timothy Keller in New York City had this summary of the content of the Christian faith. He says that the gospel teaches us that we are far more sinful and flawed than we ever dared believe, and yet we are far more loved than we ever dared to hope. And this compelling description of the Christian faith depends on what? One little iota. Is Jesus like God, or is he really, truly God? If Jesus is only like God, then our need is not great, and neither is his love. But if Jesus is God, then our need is great, and his love is greater. So which resonates with you? Which warms your heart? This Jesus of Arius, who is sent to help, encourage, and inspire? Or this Jesus who is attested to in the scriptures, affirmed by the creeds? that he is God, not sent to help, but to sent to pay a debt that we can never repay, and in doing so, save us. One should leave us cold, the other should warm our hearts. And the difference between these two radically different options depends on what? A little iota. Finally, this word, which is vital to the content of the Christian faith, also is a source of great assurance and great comfort. In researching this sermon, I've had the pleasure of reading a lot of old authors. And this is from Bishop Melito, who died in 190 AD. His writing, writings were only discovered in 1940. He writes, The Lord, when he put on human flesh and suffered for the sake of him who suffered and was bound for the sake of him who was imprisoned and judged for the sake of the condemned and buried for the sake of the dead, rose from the grave and cried aloud, Who will enter into judgment against me? Let him stand up and face me. I have set the condemned free. I have given the dead life. I have raised up the entombed. Who will speak against me? I, the Christ, who made the heavens and the earth, who formed humanity in the beginning. I have dissolved death. I have triumphed. I have triumphed over the enemy. I have trodden down hell. I have carried humanity into the heights of heaven. I am the Christ, and who will speak against me? You see, the second century preacher, with unmatched eloquence, is equating the security of our salvation with the quality of our Savior. Our salvation is only as secure as our Savior. And according to Arius, you have a good Savior, but not a great Savior. 
But according to Athanasius, you have a savior who is the very nature of God and who will speak against him. And I think this is a source of great comfort for you and me, or it can be. When we find ourselves doubting ourselves, when we find ourselves thinking, gosh, I can't believe I said or did this, when we find ourselves thinking I'm not good enough to be a Christian by even the most liberal definitions, we should think of him. Who will speak against him? When you encounter the sadness of the world, when you encounter sickness and death, when you're tempted to think that life always ends in sadness, end of story, you should think of him who dissolved death, who triumphs over the enemy, who carried humanity to the heights of heaven. Who will speak against him? Our forgiveness is certain because our Savior is great. Our hope for eternity is certain because our Savior is great. So this one little iota, which affirms that Jesus is not like God, but he is God, is finally a source of great comfort. I end with a quote from C.S. Lewis, who wrote, who wrote a little introduction to a book that Athanasius wrote called In the Incarnation, On the Incarnation. Lewis writes, his epitaph, Athanasius's epitaph, is Athanasius Contramundo, which means Athanasius against the world. He stood for the Christian faith, whole and undefiled, when it looked as if all the civilized world, world was slipping from Christianity into the religion of Arius. It is his glory that he did not move with the time. And now it is, it is his reward that he remains when those times, as all times, have moved away. So let's stand and affirm the words of the Nicene Creed credited to Athanasius, which affirms Jesus' rightful place of honor. We'll say only the portion of the creeds printed in the sermon section, and then we'll be led in song through the entirety of the creed. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. <laughs>